Well, let's, uh, let's just pause for a second here. Just, just a little pause, just to turn our hearts in the direction of the living one who animates our lives and animates this world. So I just invite you to close your eyes for a minute and just feel the richness of your life right now. Just, just this day. The sun on the water, the smell of the trees, the bird song that you heard in the morning or in the afternoons, the conversation and laughter around tables or the play of children. Your own precious life. What a gift to have. And just see if you might allow a spirit of gratitude, just a, just a gratefulness to come throughout your body, a restfulness in what you have. And then mindful of all that you have been given. Just in your own secret way. Turn towards that dear friend. Who accompanies you in all your days. And in your own way. Say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful. Holy One, we thank you together as a community. And we thank you as the little souls that we are for our lives, for this opportunity to seek and to strive and to love and to suffer and to learn and to grow. We thank you. And we thank you for this little respite, this little time away from the normal habits and routines where we can remember a little bit more of who we are and whose we are. Thank you for this time. We pray all this in the name of our friend, our brother, our teacher, in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. So, we have this little theme that we've been uh, working with, that this practice of story. And story is a, is a folk medicine. It's, it's a practice all humans have access to. And story... Um, is a way in which we foster compassion and, and empathy. And we talked about this the first night. And maybe you felt that just in the sharing and others, in those little groups, talking about places you love, talking about sacred moments, the connection that shows up when we share stories with one another and listen to one another. 
And it's also, you know, stories are patterns. Every story has a particular pattern to it. And stories can coax forth different parts of ourselves. And in our tradition, we have stories that seek to bring forward and draw out our spiritual nature. Um, to help us name and see and identify and locate where we are in our own particular journey and to help us to move out of the suffering and recall and draw forth um, love in a way that makes us more free, more alive, more, more ourselves. And the beginning of that story, in the beginning, you know, was love. In the beginning, we were named as beloved. In the beginning, we were connected. In the beginning, we had this capacity to just give and receive love in the beginning. All of us. You see that in the little ones, right? In the little ones. More tran- we're transparent in that when we first come into this world. And all stories sort of begin, right? They begin with, uh, you know, someone said, you describe a world... Something happens and you describe a new world. That's what all stories do. There's a desire, right? A beginning, a middle, and end. There's a desire. Then there's a struggle, a conflict, a problem, you know? And then there's a realization or a resolution to that. So you think of all the fairy tales, the movies, everything. It starts out with the lead characters want something. They want to fall in love. They want to help their family. They want to save the world, they want to build a business, then there's a problem, a struggle, right? And through that struggle, through that problem, through that conflict, um, we get interested. We're drawn in. We want to know, how's it going to work? Somebody told me, all good stories, you're watching someone make decisions when they don't know what to do. And that's what makes it interesting. You know, it's not predictable. See what they're coming up against. So we watch Jesus. Jesus comes into the world as beloved, connected to that deep source of love. And he declares in the synagogue, you know, I'm here to free prisoners. I'm here to bring sight to the blind. I'm here to bring hope to the poor. You know, I'm here to comfort the sick. So there's the lost sheep and I'm going to go out and find them. You know, there's a problem here. There's suffering here and I'm going to come and address it. I'm going to come into these people who are trapped in the hypnotic anxiety of our culture, and I'm going to try to set them free. And from the very beginning, he's up against that struggle, that conflict, right? As soon as he declares that, remember, if you remember, he's in his home synagogue when he declares these things. Within a few minutes, they want to push him off a cliff. (laughs) Who do you think you are to say you're going to do these things, right? And this is the struggle we're we're all kind of up against. So, but the crazy thing, and I don't know why, I don't really know why, but the long journey to freedom and to enlightenment and to, and to falling into this place of love and to becoming more who we were made to be, that long journey begins with the search for relief from suffering, right? It begins with the search to relieve the suffering. Maybe that's why you came to this church. The suffering was too much. The loneliness was too much. The anxiety was too much. What the heck? I'll try this church. Maybe they can help. Right? Came too much. So um, when my daughter was five years old, we used to go hang out at a friend's house, um, the Geyers, 
The Geyers rented a, a home. This is in, in uh, Ashland, Oregon, just on the edges of the city. Their home, there was a, a rail fence. On the other side of the rail fence, 100 acres. On the other side of the 100 acres, a uh, meadow. It was a meadow that was just kind of went up against the house they rented. There was uh, black oak trees and a creek. And my friend Eric and I, one afternoon, were sitting in the backyard, his side of the yard. Our daughters were playing, both of them five years old, drinking iced tea, talking. All of a sudden, my wife opens the back door to the house and says, Hey, how are the girls doing? Both of us realized we had not been really paying attention to the girls. And we looked out, and there, on the other side of the rail fence, in the 100-acre meadow, were, we saw our daughters, each of them on top of a horse riding across the meadow. Now, Eric, my friend, does not have horses. We do not have horses. And as far as we knew, our daughters don't know how to ride horses. So this was very alarming. This all happened within seconds, right? And I turned and said to my wife, They're fine. Go back inside. (laughs) And then Eric and I hopped the fence and ran as fast as we could out into this field. What was going on? And as we ran across this field, there in the shadow of the black oak trees that are on the other side of the field along this creek, we saw a woman and she came out, saw that we were panicked, And she said, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, they're safe, they're safe. And she was like a cowgirl, like had the hat on and the belt buckle and wranglers. And she's coming out telling us it's okay. So we're like, you know, okay, okay, what's going on? She goes, no, these these horses are very tame. I put them on the horses, it's fine, they're very tame. And we could see that there was the grass, it was mowed in a particular circle. And the horses were following this little circle. And I said, well, what's happening out here? And she says, oh, I'm a horse therapist. And she says, I do therapy to abused horses. And, I, and she said, and these are two of my finest horses that I've helped bring to health. And they're, and, they're, and they're very gentle and they're really, really safe to be with children. Okay. Well, I said, what do you mean? How do you help horses? She said, well, people will buy horses, right? They want a horse and they buy a horse for their kids. And planning that they're going to build and fence a backyard, then they never fence it. So the horse is kept in a garage. Or they get a horse and there's a divorce or something, or they fall into bankruptcy and they, they stop feeding it. And usually people will feel ashamed and they'll hide the animal. Sometimes they get, uh, they'll get a brand new colt, you know, brand new, and they'll have it enclosed in a barn or in a garage planning to do something and then they never do. And that horse spends its whole life in the dark, you know, being fed oats and, and uh, tepid water until some neighbor suspects something. And then I'm sent to go rescue this animal. And she said, it's hard. I said, I said, why is it hard? She goes, well, the animal won't come with me. They'll be in this dark enclosure, in this garage or in this barn. And I have to get two or three men, friends of mine, and we have to drag the horse out, it's crying the whole time, put it into a trailer. And then I, the whole time it's crying, I take it down into this field. And the rancher here loans this field to me. And then I have to drag the half, I have to drag the horse out of the trailer, put it out in this field, and then it starts crying. Crying and crying. It doesn't know where it is, it doesn't recognize this place, and it doesn't recognize anything as food or water. It's so used, sometimes, she said, it's so used to the smell of musty, uh, you know, kind of rotting water in troughs or in buckets or whatever they put for it, that it doesn't recognize that the creek is water. 
And so it starts crying out. It's thirsty. It's thirsty. It's thirsty. It's crying. It's crying. And I just have to wait. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, it's been used to getting this dry oats is often what people feed it. They'll feed up, you know, Quaker oats that it won't recognize the grass as food. And so it'll spend days crying, crying, hungry. And I said, well, what do you do? She said, I talk to it and I wait and I wait and I wait until eventually, usually the first thing, the horse will go to the creek. It'll stand there and then after some time, it will put its muzzle down in that water and it'll realize this is water and it'll drink. Usually it takes two or three days before it'll finally, starving, 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 will put its face down into the grass and pull it up and start to eat it and then recognize this is food. And she said, and then that's the moment. That's the moment why I do this work. And I said, what moment? When it recognizes it's in a field of food and it has all the water and food it needs. And I said, why is that the moment? She said, because when it recognizes that, it takes off running. And it runs around and around this field, kicking and jumping, knowing that it's going to be fed, that it has water to drink, and that it's free. This is our story. You know, this is our story. So many of us feel trapped in some kind of suffering. We've been trying to work our program for happiness. We've been listening to the way in which the world has told us that we can become free and be who we are. We've been trying to be successful, winners, develop the right kind of retirement, develop the right kind of schools for our children, you know, do everything right. And yet there's something about our lives that we feel an emptiness, a hollowness, a disconnection, um, some of that suffering, maybe it's trauma from childhood or other things that we've encountered that leave us like those horses in that dark space. And there's three things we normally do when we encounter suffering, right? The first thing is to do what we've always done. (laughs) We double down. We keep working our personality. We keep trying all the things we know how to do, right? Like that horse, we just, you know, we're in that barn or in that garage going, well, maybe if I do calisthenics, well, maybe if I get the place clean and organized, I know what I'll do, I'll have a schedule. I'll have a schedule. I'll get up in the morning, then I eat the oats, then I come over here and I face this direction, then I face this direction, then I do my horse calisthenics. And somehow we'll find a way, right, to break out of that suffering. We double down on the way we've always done things. But of course, you know, we get what we always get. I mean, you do what you always do. The second way we deal with suffering is we just numb out. We try to escape. There's lots of ways we have in this culture to numb out, right? We, you watch TV, you drink, you get that ice cream late at night, and they, you work harder, just work harder. Some way to deal with the suffering that we feel or the existential crisis that we feel or the trauma we're carrying, we stay in the same program or we try to escape. And we sort of stay in those two modes until finally we hit the third mode. And the third mode is, and this is, can be the gift of suffering, we just want relief. We realize that it's not working. Our program for happiness is not working. The numbing out isn't working. And so we need help. 
and we start to search for some kind of relief. Like I said, many, many of us, that's why we turned to God. We didn't really have a choice. We, everything else stopped working. And so you come and you say, okay, Lord, have mercy. You, you know, Christ, have mercy. Somebody help me here. What are we going to do? We pray. Help me. I can't do this anymore. And this can often be the beginning of the road to liberation and freedom. And many of us in this culture, it's sort of like, you know, we live in a prison. We talked about this a little, uh, earlier this morning. I, I referenced this. And we're living in the prison system, and we know how it works. And then one day, Jesus comes into the prison, you know, in the midst of our pain and our emptiness and says, hey, let's get out of here. Let's stop living like this. Let's live some way differently. And we say, you know, Jesus, that sounds really good. Um, in the prison chapel, I'm doing a four-part series on the Exodus, and it's based on liberation theology. You would love this. So I can't leave right now. In fact, you might want to attend some of these things. We have, in fact, we have this beautiful singing. We just have these songs of freedom that we've kind of tied to the lesson I'm living in the, in the, the lessons I'm teaching in the prison chapel here. And also, you don't want to miss Friday. We have pot roast every Friday here in the prison cafeteria, and it's excellent, right? We have all these excuses, all these ways we've designed our lives, and then we'll hear Jesus say to us, let's just get out of here. Let's not live like this anymore. And sometimes we hear Jesus say something really scary and frightening to us. This prison that you're living in, it's not even real. It doesn't even exist. So let's just walk. And that's really frightening. That's when I can feel myself saying, don't say it's not real. I've based my whole life on the prison system. I know who my friends are, who my enemies are. I know my status. I've developed all these different ways of living based on the prison system. Don't tell me it's not real. Right? And that's when we kind of come up against it. That in all the songs, the theology, the Bible, the teaching, all this stuff, all Jesus is trying to do is just take our hand and say, one step at a time, we're going to walk out of this place. We're not going to live like this anymore. We're going to live with a greater sense of freedom, a greater sense of truthfulness, a greater sense of expression. We're going to live with greater compassion and creativity. Right? And this is the struggle. This is the struggle. And the way out of it, you mentioned this earlier, the way, the way out of it you think about the horse in the barn. How is the horse going to free itself? <laughs> you know, many of us can't. Many of us, either in our bodies or in our life situations or in what we've been given this life, we're stuck like this. And one of the ways we have, to, or one of the invitations we see is to turn to God and surrender. Not by my will, but by yours. Right? Is, is to turn in the direction of love and say, I want to be free. And sometimes we wait. You know, sometimes we wait. There are people who've been born into circumstances where it's an inner freedom that they have to, they have to look for because of the circumstances of their lives that, they have, that they're powerless towards. And this is really frustrating, right, that we can't engineer our own transformation. 
Because we're taught in the culture that we can do anything. We can find balance. We can grow. And we're even taught that we can spiritually develop on our own. But in the Christian faith, we believe that we can't engineer. I can't manage my own transformation. That what really all I can do is seek to turn and surrender to love in the direction of love. That makes sense. It sort of sucks, <laughs> you know, that it's like that. But when you watch Jesus, Jesus is continually surrendering and giving up power, trusting friends, giving himself over to authorities, allowing you know you're not not choosing violence, allowing himself to to continue to be in a space of love and surrender even surrender to the cross. Trusting that if I continue to live in trust and love, that there is a resurrection, that there is a way I'll be held, that I will come out the other side, that one day the therapist and the three strong men will come to the garage and pull me out and put me in the trailer and take me to that verdant field. Right? And what we're looking for is a change, and you know, often with a conversion we're looking for is a change of perspective. That instead of continually trying to manipulate God and manipulate the world and force my own will on the world, we're looking for some kind of change of perspective. And this, this is difficult. I was in a, um, a project. This, this is kind of what we do as Americans and as the church, right? So... Um, a group of theologians got together and they decided we need to teach teenagers how to be Christians in every part of their life. Um, you know, how they eat, how you make decisions, um, how you deal with grief. All, you think of all the activities that you do in a human life, right? How you uh, consume and purchase things. How do, how do Christians practice all these things? So the theologians got together and they said, we're going we're gonna to come up with the answers to this reflections on how every part of a human life, how it can uh, be based on the, the teachings of Jesus, right? And then these PhD theologians thought, we'll write this book and we'll give it to 15-year-olds. But right before they did, they came to me. I was a youth worker at the time. And they said, do you think teenagers will be interested in a book and how should we write it? And I said, no, they're not going to be interested in this book at all, <laughs> particularly written by you guys. You know, you're all theologians in seminary. So they said, what would you do? And I said, well, why don't you have teenagers involved in the writing of the book? Why don't, why don't you get them together and have these conversations and, help, and they could help write it? There's a lot of students like to write. So he said, great idea. So we got together. Each theologian had to find a teenager to work with them on the chapter. And, um, and this was a Lilly-funded grant. It was a three-and-a-half-year grant. And so they decided every th three months or every six months all the teenagers and all the theologians would get together at a hotel and for three days they would work on these chapters together, right? And uh, it was terrible because, you know, when the, the theologians planned it. So when we'd get together, we'd meet at like 8 in the morning, then breakfast, you know, 8 in the morning for worship, then breakfast. Then we'd have uh, all morning the theologians would be reading different papers, you know, Paul Tillich and Karl Barth and all these, you know, great thinkers and studying the Bible and thinking about, you know, how we live our lives. 
And who, what kind of teenagers do you think they chose? They chose the teenagers you know, who take the AP level classes, who work really hard in school, you know, teenagers who would read these things that they were writing. And so these kids would come to these weekends, they'd sit through all these workshops with these you know, graduate professors, and then they'd have to go do their own homework because they're all still in high school, right? So they're staying up late, critiquing these things, thinking about how they would write these things, taking these masterful ideas. And I thought, you know, not one of these kids is going to want to be a Christian at the end of this thing. <laughs> this is killing their spirit. So we're in the Chicago um, Hyatt Regency. This is about a year and a half into the project. And I, just, and I was the only youth worker there. And I just thought, this is just awful what we're doing to these kids. And I kept trying to communicate it, but they didn't know how else to do it. So one night, second day, uh, we're all gathered, and I said, hey, um, at the dinner, dinner time, I know we have an evening um, set of seminars tonight, but after those seminars, I have one more meeting just for the kids, uh, just for you students. Um, my room is, and I gave my room number, you know, meet there at, at 8.30 when we finish the day. And these dutiful, good kids were like, okay. We finished the seminars. They all come to my room. I had a little whiteboard like this, and I said, um, okay, we're going to play Capture the Flag tonight. Now, here's the deal. You see, I've got all the names of the professors and all your names in two different teams here. Um, we're going to be uh, even floors, 20, 22, 24, 26, 28. That's team A. Team B, you're the odd ones, 21, 23, 25. And I said, okay, room 23 and room 22, that's going to be where the jails are. It's going to be the ice machines. I had, I had napkins I took from the catering company. This, these are your flags. When you tag somebody, you stay in the jail until someone tags you out. Now, I said, you see, I have the professor's names here. They're playing too, but remember, they're smart. So when you tag one of them or grab one of them, they're going to say something like, what's happening? What's going on? I don't understand. You ignore that. They're playing. You put them in jail. They go to jail, and they don't come out until someone tags them out. Just you know, keep the rules. I said, uh, now... Between the floors, we have the elevators. The elevators will be Switzerland. You can't tag anybody while they're in the elevators. And I said another thing. It's possible that someone's going to call security because of the noise while we're playing this game. Now, when we had come in that night, in the, um, you know how they have welcome signs in the lobby? There was a welcome sign for the executive staff of the um, Southern Baptist Church. And I said, if there's a call or security stops you, you say, I'm with the executive staff of the Southern Baptist Church and have them call the organizer from that organization, okay? So the kids go out and we start playing. Two scenes I remember. First scene, <clears throat> Dr. Frank Roger, professor of spiritual life, Claremont School of Theology. We're coming around the corner. Well, I'm coming around the corner with a kid named Alex and Dr. Frank Rogers is horizontal. His hands are inside the elevator. He's pushing the emergency button that's setting off the alarm Two kids are on his legs dragging him out. And Dr. Rogers is yelling, This is Switzerland! This is Switzerland! <laughs> Second scene I remember, I'm with this kid named Eric. We're coming around a corner, and this door opens up to one of the rooms in the hotel, and this guy I don't recognize says, Get in here. And we said, I said, well, who are you? He said, just get in here. So Eric and I jump in. He shuts the door. And I said, who are you? He said, there's an ambush around the corner. I said, there's an ambush around the corner. I said, well, who are you? Anyways, he said, listen, I'm just a guy on a business trip. I don't know who you, what you guys are and what you're doing, but I want in. 
We said, great, you're going to be our scout. So this guy worked on our team to tell us what was coming up ahead and all that kind of stuff. So this game goes on past midnight, right? Security is called numerous times and become part of the game. Now we're running from security as well. Long after midnight, every professor has been taken out of their rooms and is now involved in the game whether they wanted to or not. And after midnight, when the flags were finally grabbed from both teams, we all ran down into the lobby. We went into the bar, and they let us go into a room, you know, where the teenagers could be. They brought us pitchers of Shirley Temples and breadsticks. And we sat around the table, and people are laughing, saying, I saw you. No, you didn't. And they're telling stories about what happened in the game. And at some point, there was kind of a lull. And I remember standing up and kind of hitting the, the, the glass. And I just said, hey, I just want to say something to all the young people here. This, this energy right here, this is what the kingdom of God feels like. This sense of holy mischief, this sense of playfulness, this sense of there's no difference between adult and teenager, between those who have high education and those who don't. This is what it feels like. All the songs, all the theology, if it doesn't have this sense of playfulness in it, of aliveness in it, then it's not worth it. It's not worth reading. It's not worth practicing, right? This is what we're going for. We're trying to come alive. We're trying to become free. You know, we're, we're here meeting in the basement of the prison. That's what this gathering is. And we're trying to help everybody break out of jail. We're trying to find another way to come alive, another way to be fully human. And we're helping one another do that through dad jokes and music and singing and prayer and playfulness, right? We're trying to help each other do that. So the work to do that is to surrender. And I'll just give a couple images here and then we'll go. Um, Danielle will remember this person. Um, Wayne Rice, who helped start Youth Specialties a long time ago, a friend of my dad's, went to Hawaii in his mid-40s with his family. He used to live at the beach and swam a lot, so he thought, oh, I'm just going to take off swimming. Went off swimming, got caught in a riptide, and got started to be pulled out. He, he, you know, he knew what to do. He knew to kind of go along with it. But as he started to try to make it back to shore, his body just gave out. He had been working so hard uh, 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 to, to find a way back to shore, and he wasn't in great shape, and he just got tired. And he could see there were lifeguards on the beach. And he said, I can't tell you how long I sat out in that water saying, am I going to ask for help and humiliate myself, or would it be better just to drown? He said, it got real close until finally I said, help, help, and screamed for help. He said, when they got me, they, they had to pull me on the shore. I couldn't stand. You know, they dragged me, and I had to sit there just resting. I was so exhausted. We know that, right? I would rather keep working my system <laughs> than have to ask for help, than have to release who I am than have to be dragged into that trailer and taken into the field. It's difficult, but that's the work to surrender. Um, well, let me give you this final, final image, and we'll try something. So a friend of ours um, had a graduation uh, ceremony, and before he graduated, this, he, he, was, he was an adult, had gone back to college in his mid-30s, graduated, and he asked my wife and I to come to a night of... Um, children of, of, of alcoholics. And he wanted to tell his story to that group and he wanted us to be witnesses to it as people in his neighborhood and our friends, our, our kids were friends. So we went and after the uh, evening was over, 
Uh, he, he was excited because he was going to graduate the next day from, from the local university. And a woman there sat with us, and, she, and she's given me permission to tell this story. And she said, you know, all my suffering has been around graduations. And we said, what? What do you mean? And she said, well, she said, I grew up in a family. Both my parents were working alcoholics. Middle class, family, and they both had jobs. And I was basically left to raise myself. If you look at pictures of me growing up, you could tell nobody's taking care of me. My hair's disheveled. My, hygiene, my clothes don't fit me right. My hygiene was never very good. I was just a kid kind of on my own. And our house was depressing. Shades drawn, curtains drawn, often not enough food in the house. My parents would come home, drink, often pass out. And it was kind of up to me to raise myself. She said, so I was a very lonely kid. I didn't have friends. I didn't have people over. I kept to myself. But in sixth grade, I learned something about myself. I noticed something about myself. And that was I was smart. I was smart. I, I, I understood what the teacher was doing. I, I um, knew how to do math. I liked to read. And I just poured myself into my schoolwork. She said, um, got into high school, did well in high school, still didn't have friends, but when the high school graduation showed up, I was so excited because I was going to be recognized. In our school, they put a gold cord over your robe if you have one of the highest GPAs. And I thought, yeah, the other students are going to see me in this cord. The community is going to see me in this cord. I show up to the graduations in an auditorium, and then the principal made this terrible announcement. The principal said, um, we have a lot of students. We have a long ceremony. So when we give out the diplomas, what we're going to do is we're just going to call the kids' names, but I want you to hold your applause. Don't applaud or cheer until we've called everyone. Once everybody has their degrees, then we'll all rise and we'll, we'll celebrate them together. So the reason this was a terrible announcement is that nobody honored it. So that with every name, it, a few people would yell, right? Sometimes other students would yell. And even though the principal kept saying, hey, we're just going to wait until the end, it didn't matter. Everybody got at least a couple of people yelling or calling their name or saying something. And I got this sick feeling because I knew when my name was called, uh, it would be silent. So my mom didn't even show up to my graduation. My dad was standing in the back with a drinking buddy. And I just, you know, through telepathy was just like, please, 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 please do something. Uh, but when my name was called, I walked across that stage and it was silent. And I felt so ashamed as the only student who walked across in silence that when the ceremony ended, I threw away my cord, I threw away my diploma, my robe, and I just walked home in shame and in tears. I went to college. I did well in college. I skipped my college graduation. I went to law school. I did well in law school, but I was still pretty much a loner. And I went to the law school graduation. The second I walked into the ceremony, that memory came back. And I started kind of panicking, and I saw a group of teenagers, and I went up to them and showed them my name and said, hey, this is my name. When, I, when they call me, would you guys all cheer? And I paid them. You know, this, is a, this is a woman who's accomplished, right? She's getting a law degree. She's paying strangers to cheer for her. She said, went up there, and she said, believe it or not, the dean made the same announcement. And... The ceremony went on, and for the second time in my life, the teenagers weren't paying attention when my name was called, and for the second time in my life, I walked across the stage in silence. 
And that night, she said, I began to drink. And I began to drink. And she said, I lost everything. Within a couple of years, I was living in a car, living in women's shelters, I was living on the street, and I lost 10 years. 10 years. Just all that pain and all that hurt. Until finally I got into AA, I got out of the drinking, I met a man. She said, last year I got married, and I had my first birthday party two weeks ago. I'd never had a birthday party. And my husband threw this birthday party. He invited people from uh, where I'm working now in the apartment complex, our AA group, they came, and it was like a children's party since I'd never had a party. Right? We had little hats and pin the tail on the donkey and the cake and all that kind of stuff. Played all the games. When the night ended, he said, hey, everybody get around the television set. We sat around the TV, and he put in this little DVD, this little video. And it was a video with music playing and interviews with people who knew me, saying what they loved about me, right? And he found little pictures of me that he put up, and it was really sweet. And then we got to the end, and all of a sudden, up onto the screen comes my law school graduation. And it's right at the point, right before they call my name. Um, And so we're watching this, and I hear them call my name, and I see myself get up and start to walk across, except this time, I hear people cheering and and calling my name out. So my husband is a sound engineer. He had gone to a gymnasium, and he had recorded himself over a hundred times, sitting in different seats in the auditorium, applauding, you know, yay, Teresa, way to go, Teresa, <laughs> clapping in different pace, doing different voices, so that this time, and he looped it all together, right, edited it all together, so that this time, when I came across the thing, it was a different soundtrack, and there's all this cheering. She said, I'm watching to this, I'm listening to this, and she said, before I knew what I was doing, I stood up, and I said, turn that off, turn it off, turn that off, that's not what happened. And I yelled, and it was awkward, and it was embarrassing. But I went up, and I shut the thing off, and I went into my bedroom, and I just fell apart. Just all the shame, all the hurt, all the work I had done to try to claim some kind of worth. Just all that failure just came over me. Everybody left. My husband came in. I said, I can't even talk to you. You show the worst moment of my life. You just put it up on a screen like that? How dare you? And I sat in that room, and I just wept and wept and wept until about 2, 3 in the morning. And I came out. She said, I hadn't had any cake was the first thing that brought me out. And I came out. My husband was out there on the couch. And I stared at that television, and I went, and I put that DVD in again. And I fast-forwarded it to that scene. And I watched myself trying so hard, this young woman working so hard to claim her value and worth. And I watched her stand up to receive that degree. And I listened, and this time I heard my husband and over a hundred voices telling me, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And this time I let it in. I let it in. 
This is the journey Jesus has invited us in on. This is our journey. This is our struggle. To find some way to position ourselves, to sit there in the chair, watch our lives, to listen to the voices, even when we try to block it out, even when we get cynical, to find a way to position ourselves where we can allow that voice of freedom to penetrate all the protective devices, all the chattering in the culture, and allow ourselves to receive our birthright, to receive our birthright. So I want to give us a chance to sort of move um, from, you know, this stuff I'm presenting to see what shakes out in your own life. We've been telling stories to one another, testifying really to one another about experiences in our life. And what I'd like to do for this night, because we're all in a struggle, we're all in a struggle for freedom here, is I want you to think of a moment where you received kindness or compassion. Some moment in your life where someone was kind to you or compassionate to you. Okay? Maybe it was really small. You know, you were in a grocery store, you knocked some things over, and someone said, don't worry about it, I'll get it for you. Somebody left a note when they knew you had lost a, a, a family member at your door brought flowers over. Someone saw you were having a hard day at work and said, let me take this project. Don't worry about it. They took something over for you. Might have been something small or might have been quite big. You were 18 years old and some teacher slowed down and said, hey, sit here for a second. How are you doing? And really listened and, and was compassionate and kind. Think of some moment where you received compassion or kindness. Maybe it was from a child some moment of receiving compassion or kindness, and you're gonna share that moment, and then the others are just gonna listen and say thank you at the end, and then we'll see what shows up, okay? Okay, so find two or three others, share the moment of compassion or kindness, and then we'll see what shows up. Let's see if we can unpack this just a little bit. So, what was it like to share, to remember and share this experience? Yeah. It's hard to pick just one. Okay, you shared multiple. Okay. What was it like when you actually got to tell it? Uh, like rewarding. Like I, I could remember the love that I felt. You could remember the love. What's it like to remember the love? Uh, it feels fulfilling. Like it, 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 the same word I used earlier. Yeah, it <laughs> feels fulfilling. Yes, yes. You know, and, and the word remember, the etymology of that word is to bring into the body. So you bring back into the body that love or that compassion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Others, what was it like to, to remember and tell? Yeah, in the very back there. Yes. Yes, so, so it was very emotional to remember this child comforting you and you hadn't said anything and yet, and yet this child knew and, and offered you comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it brings those emotions back up. Yeah, it's something intimate that we're touched in that way. Yeah. Yeah. 
others. What was it like to, yeah? How did they know yeah. how to be that kind? Yeah, so this person somehow was attentive or tuned in to you in a way that, that, that they knew, even though you might not have said anything. They, they picked it up somehow in your body language or whatever, and, they, and there's a kind of care in noticing. Yeah, mm-hmm. And there's someone else back there. Sure, yeah. Okay. What was it like to listen to others? Yeah. I, I thought, like, from what I heard, I could relate to the, the sense of gratitude that the person felt, but also to the struggle that the person had. Ah, so you could relate to the gratitude, but you also related to the struggle that they were in when they received that compassion. Yeah. Others, what was it like for you to listen? Yeah. Yeah, so, so you kind of got an understanding of feel for who they are a little bit and some insight into that person just in hearing that particular story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes? It, it made me feel grateful for the response that, that they received that someone would, would care and reach out to them. Yeah. Huh. So, you, so you also, even though it's another life, a different experience, you felt grateful and a gratitude that that happened for them. You're hearing them in a particular situation, and this compassion comes to them, and you're like, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so very glad that happened for you. Yeah, you received that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is compassion, anyways, given, based on these stories that were shared in your little group? Ah, someone extends their heart. They extend their feeling towards the other person. Yeah, yeah. I feel for you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. their heart stretches out to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, you wanted to meet those people you heard in those stories. There's some, they're, they're going extra. They're coming out of their self to, to, to be there for someone else. And you wanted to meet them, yes. Yes, back in the corner. Mm-hmm. 
and put yourself in their shoes. Yes, so it's the willingness to stretch yourself, as you were saying, going the extra mile. Or you're, you're, Everybody keeps doing these stretching motions, and you, you sit in the life of someone else, and you try to imagine what could they, what could help them? How could I? Yes, yeah. All of our stories involve the, the person giving practical assistance. Giving practical assistance, yeah. So, so not just the feeling, but, but it's like, hey, let me help you do I'll, I'll get a truck and we'll move this thing or whatever, some, something practical. Yes, because when we're, um, compassion is not just about, hey, I really feel for you. That's part of it. But emotion, right, has the word motion in it. it you feel for someone and it want, your body wants to respond. You want to hug or you want to say, hey, listen, I can, I'll, let me come bring you dinner tonight. You know, you guys are worn out or I'll take the kids or uh, you know, the, the writer Anne Lamott talks about the, the face of God was two people from her church showing up when she was taking, she was broke, she had a baby, she was a single mom, and two people from the church said, how can we help you? And she said, would you clean my bathroom? It has, and they said, you got it. And she, that thing was a disgusting disaster. And they went in there and they scrubbed the whole thing clean for me, right? That's, that's compassion. Practical ways too, Yes. So this is what breaks us out of the prison, right? This is, how, this is one of the ways we help each other get free. Is this world, or most of our suffering, right? suffering isolates us. And when someone sits and listens to us, kind of like we did with one another right now, and when someone reaches out and says, I'm going to try to stand in your shoes and feel life the way you, you know, oh, I got you, I can feel this with you here. And then respond, sometimes with, with practical acts of love, sometimes with a hug, sometimes just with eyes, I'm here with you. We feel our belovedness. And, and whatever situation we're in, the anxiety quiets a bit, the depression recedes a little bit, and we feel a little less alone. We feel a little bit more of that communion or that community of, uh, that, that Christ speaks of. Sometimes the situation hasn't changed at all. But to no longer be alone in it and to have someone with me in it can make all the difference. Does that make sense? I just wanted you to feel a little bit of that. And part of the work may be for you to begin to show the same kind of compassion towards yourself from yourself that you heard in these stories today or that you shared. Sometimes that's the work. Make sense? Yeah. So, um, questions, comments, challenges, something that's kind of bothering you maybe or that may help all of us? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You know, because we're talking, it's all all good. Yeah. But when you leave here, you go out and when you wish to suffer, wish, hope, whatever, need some compassion, but, you know, it's a tough world out there. It is a tough world. What's the advice that, like, okay, you don't get that extension and stuff that you wish you had. You just hold on, you just live in each other in love. What, <coughs> what can y'all Well, I mean, I don't know how Spark works, yeah. but, but this is your resource here, right? So if... One of the, you know, a friend of mine stopped going to church because he said, he said, I could handle church if you just had a sign over the door that said, let's pretend. 
Because many of the churches he went to, it's like, this is, everybody's faking it here. So one of the invitations for this community, and, and I'm not saying this doesn't already happen, but can I be real here? And can in small groups or in worship or after worship or in places that, you know, we're just getting together for uh, a game night or something. But I, do I still have the freedom to say, hey, I'm hurting. Would you just pray for me right now? Or can I talk to you for a second? Maybe you find a friendly face. Maybe some of you just in the groups today have met people. You thought, I trust this person. You know, or maybe you look for them. Or maybe you guys have a small group program too, don't you? Yeah, in small groups or something. Somebody told me they were in a small group here. You find those places, but this is our resource. You know, you know in the Jewish tradition, um, there is no individual salvation. Either everybody gets there or nobody gets there. <laughs> so we should have that same idea here. we got to help one another. And your freedom invites my freedom. And so we got to find a way to help one another. So we, I, don't, I don't know how that could work here, but this is the place where that can start. Yeah. Well, I, I want to close um, in this way. I want to invite us... Um, if there was a word, let's imagine that we're all trapped <laughs> and we're all struggling. We're all a little bit like that woman who's getting the law degree and she's trying to figure out a way to claim her worth. Or let's imagine at least that maybe there's somebody in the room like that. If there was a word you could speak out loud right now, just a word that you would say to that person, somebody here who might be struggling silently, um, or maybe it's a word you need to hear. What's a word you could say out loud? And I'll just, as I hear them, I'll just repeat them just so we can sit with each of those words. I'm just going to invite you to say that out loud as a way of closing this time. Love. Love. Accepted. Accepted. Seen. Seen. Worthy. Worthy. Known. Belonging. Belonging. Enough. Enough? Yeah. Understood. Understood. <coughs> yeah. I believe we've heard. Say it. Heard. Heard. Yeah. Not alone. You're not alone. You're welcomed. Blessed. You're blessed. Cherished. You're cherished. Included. You're included. Wanted. You're wanted. You're treasured and valued. And valued. Yeah. So thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the way in which you speak through all of us. We thank you for the words that you've given us within us and within this community. 
We thank you for all of those people who showed us compassion. May they be blessed this night, wherever they are. Uh, We offer our gratitude and thanks for the kindness that they've shown each of us and help us to receive that compassion and to let it penetrate and move into the dark and helpless places within us and remind us of our true nature, despite whatever struggle that uh, we're in right now. We're not alone. We're wanted and treasured and cherished. We're valued. We're included. And help us to receive that. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your trust in us. We thank you for the journey. We pray all this in the name of the traveler, in the name of the pioneer, in the name of the lover, in the name of Jesus. Amen.